It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's Monday the 26th of February, unbelievably the last week of February already. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. As Ukraine commemorates two years since Vladimir Putin invaded, President Zelensky told reporters 31,000 of his troops have been killed so far in the war. The shelling continues and the attacks across the Gulf continue. Conservative MP Lee Anderson has been suspended following comments he made about the mayor of London. His comments from a senior conservative are Islamophobic are anti-Muslim and are racist. Donald Trump's easily defeated Nikki Haley in the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. We're going to say, Joe, you're fired. Get out. Get out, Joe. You're fired. To help try and make sense of the news and work out what should really be leading it, I'm joined by my colleagues here at Tortoise, our news editor, Jess Winch. Hello. And by Stephen Armstrong. Hello, Stephen. Hello. And I'm also delighted that Chris Anderson, the head of TED, the organisation behind the TED Talks, is here too. Chris, thanks so much for coming in. It's lovely to be here. And I'm looking forward to having a conversation. I'm going to try and have a separate conversation, a bonus episode of the news meeting to talk about Infectious Generosity, your book. Um, A big and unlikely idea in these uncheerful times. (laughs) Um, We're going to do that separately, but... I hope that infectious generosity is going to infect your thinking on what should really lead the news. So I wonder whether or not you can kick off giving us your long story short. 21,000 children whose lives were threatened uh, were actually saved yesterday. The ugly forces threatening their lives have unpleasant names like diarrhea and polio (laughs) measles. Um, and the, uh, the superheroes who saved their lives were nurses and doctors and public health advocates and policymakers and even horribly unpopular people like Bill Gates and, and the global team running vaccines. Um, but this is an amazing fact about the world that, n- that no one knows. Like, like 30 years ago, uh, 30 4,000 or so children died every day, um, many of them from preventable diseases. So we, let's, let's discuss that. What you're talking about here is a fact that identifies progress that the news regularly, daily ignores. Correct. Correct. S- Stephen, your story. 
Uh, my story is staying in is the new only safe option. <laughs> Good grief. Didn't we do that? 2020, 2021, 2022. So it's a story I remember too well. Jess, no yours? Escape. Mine's no end in sight, Sudan's forgotten war. Mm. Yes. Can we start with Chris's story? Because you you know well enough, you know the media well enough running TED, what makes the news and what doesn't. What's your way of pitching a story like that? Hmm. Because it's one thing to make the point today, but if you do 21,000 children alive who would otherwise have died thanks to healthcare systems and workers hmm. uh, at the start of this week, what do you do tomorrow? So this is the challenge that, that we face. Um, you know, the news is basically shortened for new and interesting. And what we find new and interesting seems, you know, we've almost made that code for being informed is to is to understand what's new and interesting. But actually, why should that be? We're actually very quirky about what we find interesting. How about what if we, instead we were looking for what is significant about the world? We, we might come up with with very different answers. I actually worked as a as a my, uh, being a journalist was my first job, and I loved it. And I'm I, I'm so in awe of of the work that journalists do. But it did strike me as odd that, like, I tried to crack the code of why is it that the Associated Press puts bulletin on 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 the stories that it thinks are the big globe, you know, leading stories, and um, often it's as simple as a hundred people need to die violently. You know, if that happens somewhere in the world, we're good. You know, we have our lead. Um, but I but. And that is definitely interesting, and it sort of it grabs your attention, and it's shocking, and you see the families of the people who are so upset and in grief, and it's it really seems like a terrible thing. But we're never given context, you know. I mean, do I wonder how many people who listen to the news know that uh, more than one hundred and sixty thousand people die every day? Um, that's something, right? And you'd think that 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 would be a relevant piece of context, or that. These incredible things are going on behind the scenes that could actually be a much more important story if they were given a chance to be told in an interesting way. So like this fact that actually because of progress, 21,000 children today and tomorrow and the next day, those lives will be saved. So I guess my, my question is, if we, if we only focus on the dramatic and the, and the, and the bloody, um, we're, we're sort of even though these stories are true and exciting and I guess should be reported at some level, they are collectively giving us a false state, a false sense of the state of the world. Jess, what do you think of this? Because there's, there's the old argument, isn't there, which is that the news media has a tendency to run with exactly the stories Chris is talking about. If it bleeds, it leads. But flip it the other way around. Why is it that the news struggles to have a running order that effectively says progress wins? Um, well, I was thinking about it slightly differently over the weekend because I think the two questions I've been asked most by my editors over the years, one is what's happened and one is why now? And those are the two things that seem to define the running order and what stories get picked. And as Chris said, this question of what's significant doesn't quite feature in that same way and maybe that should. And I think that's something that uh, tortoise tries to do more and take stock a little bit more. I think this is a really important issue. But as you say, I don't know how you tell this story. I don't know how you um, make it relevant today. There's an interesting element in this because when we set up tortoise, one of the things that I used to go around saying and still say is 
the news is very good at events. It's not very good at developments. Mm. Right? So yeah. it's very good at things that happen in time, not over time. But even then, I'm aware that my wiring as a journalist means that I'm often looking at developments that are troubling, threatening, difficult, challenging. I'm not doing what you're talking about, Chris, which is look at developments which are constructive, positive, life-changing. Mm. And Stephen, I, I mean, I wondered what you think. Is there, a, is there just an unnecessarily anxious, anxious-making mindset <laughs> that journalists bring to their judgment of the world? I think, I think there is this question of where do you stop with your context? How far back can you pull out? So, for instance, you could take Chris's 21,000 children brought out of poverty you could say, how did that happen? Well, it largely happened because there have been jobs, that there's been a massive you know, globalisation, liberalisation. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that actually the, the people who were well off in the developing world, quite often they've seen a sharp downturn in their uh, feelings of optimism and good fortune. And maybe that's led to the political instability in America at the moment with a Donald Trump who appeals to a, <laughs> we used to, what happened to, where's it gone? Yes. So all of these things, but then... On the other hand, why is, have the jobs gone there? Well, we, we pull back, we pull back. So in the UK, just after the Second World War, uh, a lot of people left to go to Australia, the £10 POM scheme. Suddenly Bradford emptied out. There were no mill workers there. They were all working for the sheep farmers in Australia. So massive import of uh, South Asian workforce into Bradford, which point the mills then go back to Chittagong. It moves all the time, all over the place. These vast mass movements of people, these huge socioeconomic changes. And we need to actually try to get a picture as to where do we stop and say this is what the, this is where the interesting point is this is the development that matters to us today and I think we get it wrong a lot at the time but sometimes perhaps we need to always be aware of the much much bigger picture and note when it matters is there a, is there a process within TED Chris whereby you try and think of this balance um, I remember when we got started at Tortoise this um, it's a brilliant woman who uh, runs the church down the road here, St. James Piccadilly, Reverend Lucy Winkett's her name. And she said, you know, the interesting thing about news is you guys are really good at the minute hand, and we in religion are really good at the hour hand. <laughs> We're not so good at the minute hand, and you're really not so good at the hour hand. And I wonder whether with Ted, you try and think about how do we get both the new and the bigger historical context that Stephen's talking about. Yeah, and there's, there's no surefire way to do it. One of my favorite recent TED Talks was by Steve Johnson, where he asked an interesting question. He said, if you could put a single headline to describe the 20th century, what would it be? You know, what, what's your single headline? And, you know, you think of world wars and fascism and communism and all the rest of it. He said, here's the headline. Life spans doubled. Um, and and that that is an incredible fact, and you can you can sort of say, well, there's all sorts of ins and outs and bad consequences of that. For most people, like that is an astonishing an astonishing fact that is not reported. It's not the headline in pretty much any history book or, or anything like that. We 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 sometimes forget the the biggest stuff, and I think part of the problem is is that we we need to make a much more conscious effort to wrestle with human cognitive biases. We are excited by the dramatic and by the threatening. Mm. Um, our reflective selves have to really struggle to get a sense. So what we're talking about is statistics. It, like Ultimately, look at the data. What is the data saying about what is happening to life? And then can you find a way to make, make that interesting? 
Um, very few people can. By the way, it's a brilliant exercise. <laughs> Maybe think there's a brilliant exercise to be done, which is to do every century of the last 20 or so. <laughs> in one and line. In one headline. <laughs> yeah. You know, steam, printing press. You know, <laughs> there, there will be these moments where you'll say the whole century, doubling of the notion of the earth itself. You know, there will be moments where mm. we make sense and, of a century and, and in for, a line. And even for now, like if you said, who is the figure in Britain most likely to shape history of the future? You know, um, so is it Rishi Sunak? Is it Keir Starmer? Is it, you know... No, it's probably Demis Hassabis, um, who's the co-founder of DeepMind. You know, what's happening in AI will probably have a far bigger impact than anyone else. But but when you look at the actual news headlines and what what dominates and stuff like that, we Mm -hmm. don't we don't think about that, that, you know, it's it's the slow things have the most influence. So so I think the, the premise of Tortoise News is incredible. You know, that is where you can find it. And and it is um, almost everything good that happens in the world happens slowly. Many bad things also happen slowly, but almost all of the good things happen slowly. So, but if so the news that says what is dramatic that happened in the last few hours will almost never come up with a good thing. So, so can we just have a go at your story properly, right? Rather than in the kind of slightly polite "thank you for coming in" way that we're doing it so far, right? <laughs> because the truth is. You know very well that if you go to the news desk at the New York Times or the BBC or even come to think of it tortoise and say, let's lead on 21,000 children who might otherwise have died, we'd say that's lovely, Chris, but that's not it doesn't work as a story in the right. sense that it's a counterfactual, it's an everyday, it, it, it also has no narrative to it. It, it doesn't mm. work as a story. So mm. let's actually just focus between us how would you actually make that into a story that really could lead the news? So it's it's a, it's a beautiful question and challenge, and I think it's actually solvable. I mean, one one first step is just to go and talk to mothers of families out there in a in a part of the world where that there has been high child mortality in the past. You know, here is a mother who last week their kid had diarrhea and it was horrible, um, um, but. She gave him um, a, a little sachet of, of, you know, sugar and salt and water, and and he, he survived. Mm-hmm. And look at him, and look at the joy, and 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 does she, you know, and talk to the local health officials who actually worked hard to get distribution of this this stuff, and how hard that took. So that that's one approach is to just find some of the human stories of of this child would probably have died a while back. The whole, it's another another way to go is to tell the stories of some of the. Um, heroes of, of public health, and it is, you know, they've 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 worked for years, and they've they've developed incredible insights. I mean, some of the strategies to beat something like polio, for example, um, measles, you know, whatever. There, there there are amazing stories in there that can be illuminated, and and you can perhaps get some impact that way. But it's not it's it's not easy because we're 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 we, we we are drawn to certain things. And I, I think that I, what I wish was taught to all of us, actually, more deeply is think of humans as having these instinctive selves and these reflective selves. As Danny Kahneman put, thinking fast and slow, most of our lives are de- devoted by fast thinking, 
instinctive thinking. It's our reflective selves, which is our slow thinking, that actually is who we want to be. We want that to be the determinant. Hello, slow news. This <laughs> is reflective. It can be defined as reflective news. It's like we are this news source that gives power to people's reflective selves to actually think about what matters about the world and the future. That is amazing, by the so, way. So, so Jess, let's say that we have, I say to you, we've got this rather promising <laughs> reporter, Chris Anson's come in, and he's took sort of boundless goodwill. Uh, and he has got a very big, good idea, which is to take the measurement of progress, particularly in healthcare, let's stick with the healthcare issue. Yeah. How do you turn that into a story that when people are sitting, watching the six o'clock news or looking at the front of a news website thinking, yes, that's that's got a place there, that makes sense? <laughs> hmm. The, uh, right, let me think this through. In terms of the healthcare progress idea, we did, one thing that springs to mind is that we did at the end of last year a kind of list of reasons to be cheerful, that it's not all bad. And we actually got quite a lot of feedback to that from readers going, why don't you do more of this? Like, this is exactly what we needed at the end of a very long and hard year of 2023. So one thing could be to try and, I suppose, do more of a analysis or data-led story, actually, as you say, rather than just saying 21,000 children now are living who would otherwise not be, which is a pretty amazing statistic, is looking at where, where, where is the most advancement being seen? As you say, then can you track down a particular family who's benefited from that or a healthcare worker who is directly responsible for that and what's their backstory? Like you read, um, you can find incredible individuals who have been working in this space for decades. I'm thinking in particular of um, uh a man in the Democratic Republic of the Congo who's been working for decades with rape victims, for example, and then has been nominated for a Nobel Prize. But the work, the stories he has to tell has been going on for decades. So it's trying to find it's trying to find a hook. It's trying to find the answer to the question, why now? Or it's trying to commission a report that can give you that sense of authority in reporting those numbers now. Stephen? So, I mean, I, I'm a good example of this story because my father had polio and he had polio as as the cure came, his his left leg is still quite withered, but he didn't die. And so as a result, I'm here. So I am the good news story. <laughs> um, but what I think is that the reason that Kahneman's fast and slow thinking uh, model exists is because it's the, the, the people who think fastest who survive. If, if you make, make your heuristic of the saber-toothed tiger and you go, I'm not going to take the risk, I'm going to assume that bad news is bad news, I'm going to get out of here, you're more likely to have people like me. So um, what we do is I think we play into that heuristic. You play into the uh, survival. You say, well, this is the thing that's helping you to survive right now. But do you know what? It wouldn't have been here if this hadn't happened. So I think going back to the mothers today, I don't think that helps us think about how we survive now. I think you say, well, Sergey Brin... Are you talking about leaning into the kind of vaccine hesitancy that you're well, seeing and that, going, well, that... by the way, that's this yeah. is a big part of why so many more children are living today. And, or you could even take the, the uh, for instance, you could look at public health now and say, well, one of the ways it's being applied in Scotland or was applied in Scotland is to massively reduce the murder rate. So there are young men right now not being stabbed or not stabbing each other because a police officer took public health thinking and reduced the public health response to violence. So there you start to go, well, right now, your child chances of walking the streets of Glasgow are far safer um, if you, thanks to public health interventions, then that becomes you are not going to die now because of public health. And I think that's how you feed into our fear, in a sense, with a, with a good news story. We're going to pause there and turn to Jess, your story. 
So the what and the why now is that uh, the UN released a, port, a report at the end of last week, which is just gives you a, an overview of how the violence in Sudan has spiraled since war broke out between two generals last April. And the so what is that while we've the world's attention has has rightly been focused on Ukraine on Gaza, I feel that there is it shouldn't be this zero sum game where all your attention goes so much into some certain places that Sudan is actually a story that we should be paying much more attention to um, in newsrooms and more broadly, not just because of the humanitarian impact, but because I don't think we've really digested how it where it could go beyond Sudan and the, the way that other countries um, and issues could be brought to play um, over the coming weeks and months. So um, just to, as a sort of brief catch up, um, last April, the two generals, one who runs the Sudan military, one who runs the paramilitary rapid support forces, started fighting. They have been working together for some time, um, but it got clearly too difficult to share power and now they are battling it out. Sudan is one of Africa's largest countries. It's home to 45 million people. And the report that came out on Friday from the UN is just showing how um, both sides have been indiscriminately attacking civilians, um, including the um, the, uh, the military bombing civilian targets, uh, widespread reports of rape and gang rape, including of children, um, apparently more carried out by the paramilitary RSF. Um, but to try, just sort of by the numbers, we've had... 8 million people forced from their homes and nearly a quarter of them have fled to neighbouring countries. That's mainly Chad, Egypt and South Sudan. 80% of hospitals in conflict areas have been closed. 18 million people are facing acute hunger, according to the World Food Programme. And the UN, and this puts the whole attention deficit issue into context, the UN has appealed for $2.7 billion. Do you want to guess how much they've raised? It's going to be painful. Hundreds of millions? $97 $97 million. Mm. 3.5% of what the UN has asked for is being what's raised, which means that the UN is having to sort of go into emergency reserves. And this is at a time as well when the UN emergency reserves might be needed to cover UNRWA and Gaza because they're also running out of money. So it's a lot of, a lot of catastrophes sort of in one, all in Sudan. And then if you take a step back from the humanitarian crisis, this is also an indication you know, that we've reported before about how the sort of this violence and coups have been going across the Sahel, this kind of belt that goes all the way yes. across Africa. What's happening in Sudan means that that chaos is going right up to the Red Sea. They've got a kind of long coastline on the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is already, as you know, um, not the partic- not particularly stable area. And this is just another, you know, another point of conflict that's being brought into play. Iran is backing one side in the conflict. The UAE is backing another side in the conflict. Um, Wagner forces are reportedly operating in Sudan as well, where they control gold mines. And that's a sort of a minor element of this, but it shows you the kind of international forces that are at play here as well. That means this isn't just a humanitarian catastrophe, although it is. So, so can I go so to Chris story. on this? Because, you know, the definition of a journalist is someone with strong opinions easily changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's happened within a matter of minutes here. I listen to Jess and I think to myself, Chris, actually, our problem is not a failure to report progress. It's a failure to really understand the cascading consequences of really systemic problems. And I listen to Jess and I think, all right, so there's a 
UN problem here, global leadership. There's a migration problem here. There's, as you say, there's a contagion of instability into the Middle East problem here. And there's a media, you know, Ukraine, Gaza, can anyone remember about Sudan problem here? If anything, the problem of the news is failing to focus attention on the on not good news, but bad news, real problems. Yeah, I'm absolutely not suggesting we should focus on good news. I think this story is is a really, really important story to understand. I think what I'm arguing is that is that we should be looking for the real issues that will most shape the future for the most number of people, regardless of whether we find it instantly interesting. You've just outlined what is what is a complex situation. You've outlined it eloquently. Most people, or that yeah, somewhere in Africa, there's some bad stuff going on. I I I, I can't even go into that. You know, Somalia is another horrifying situation. Half a million people have died now in the civil war there or more. And it's 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 like we don't we don't report this stuff because we don't have an easy way into it. And, and it and can so, get overwhelming as well. I mean, this is something I struggle with. If you're looking at the world's conflict zones, it's where. Yeah, how do you keep telling the story in a way that doesn't make people just want to go enough? I can't and, do it. And is something different happening now, Jess? Because some people would say, look, you know, I can't remember the details, but I know that there's been conflict in Sudan for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Is something different happening now that means people need to pay attention, people need to think about the underfunding problem of the UN? I think, as you say, this is... A very complicated situation has been going on for a very long time. I think what's particularly sad at the moment is that there was a sort of civic revolution in 2019 that overthrew Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. There was hope, there, you know, that there was hopes for Sudan. And those hopes are now buried. They're, they're gone. Um, and we're now in a situation where two generals who I don't think either one can win but both are you know they, they're they're now locked into this situation that everyone is ignoring and that people can't seem to find a way through some u.s and saudi-led efforts to kind of step towards a ceasefire last year just didn't work at all um the u.s ambassador has just announced he's stepping down um so there's that lack of diplomatic leverage there as well i think the u.s is planning to appoint a special envoy which you and that's as close to a glimmer of hope if they're going to try and get someone on board who might have a little more clout to bring people around the table. But um, I think I think for Sudan, I think this just feels like particularly desperate. And I think um, the level of the lack of attention um, that it's getting relative to, to previous, so to Darfur in 20, 2003, um, I think this is getting less attention than that did. And I do think there's risks of genocides happening again at the moment. Thank you. Let's take a moment and then we'll turn to Stephen. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected, thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail, two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. Stephen, what have you got? Um, so my story, I uh, admit now uh, straight away, is almost uh, diametrically opposed to the good news that um, Chris <laughs> brings, and, and partly because it's amazingly, this is my personal fear. This is, this is something that strikes at my fast-thinking panic heuristic, because I have two daughters, one who is 22, one who is 19, and they are both going out. And this story is about spiking. It's about the first set of official figures, the first official data, 2022 to 2023, on spiking incidents in the UK. And that's 6,732 reported incidents of people having their drinks deliberately poisoned in an attempt to knock them out. Now, 74% of those people are women, and the vast majority are age 26. So that is the threat to my daughter's writ in a numerical Sorry, average form. age 26 Six. even or under under 26 it says average age 26 now there is other data which suggested that freshers week is a peak time for spiking and there's a lot of university action around that so all of these figures are provisional because they're based on reported incidents and when you when i am I mean, just based on personal experience my daughters have known incidents of spiking none of which not a single one of which has ever been reported so to scale up those figures to the true picture we would i think we'd get a very different picture if we were to know the exact numbers but what there are so many problems that are, that, that surround this story so the, the drugs are they move rapidly through the system depending on what they are there's a variety of drugs that idea of retinol is 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 passe it is uh, it's things like um ghb or or it's um benzodiazepines quite often they'll be out of the system in 12 hours when someone falls down drunk they will go to hospital by the time they've realized they've been victim of a crime the drugs are out of their system there's no way to, for the police to test so the whole thing becomes very murky, very mysterious. There's very little research done on it. There's one piece of research in the US where they actually spoke to people who had spiked pe- uh, women, largely, and asked why. And it was for fun, for rape, for revenge, and for theft. So there's this kind of wall of animosity being hurled at these young women. And the uh, problems that they face is that time tried failure to analyze the life of a young woman which is in this article in the sunday times which is some excellent reporting the dolled up woman the idea of the woman who's out having fun in a short skirt and who then comes to harm as a result 
And underneath it all is the, well, didn't she, what did she expect? Didn't she deserve it? Which I think underpins this story. And I think for any father of daughters, that's a, that's a terrifying tale. And it, does spiking happen in particular places? Uh, it, well, it starts with uh, one story. It starts with a woman in, a, in an expensive Notting Hill restaurant. Um, the the highest proportion appears to be around nightclubs, uh, but it does happen in restaurants and bars. Uh it, to the point that there are now you 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 now buy um, for your daughter if you want uh, caps to put on their drinks so that they can put a straw through the cap and not have their drink um, uh, spiked while they're they're in a bar or they they only drink out of bottles so they can put the thumb over the top of the bottle. I can just pick up on the context point that Chris made earlier, which is we did a series of reports which were really difficult to do about spiking by injection. Yes. Because there was a wave of fear around spiking by injection, and it proved very, very hard to find any examples of this uh, happening. Right? There were there were a number of people. I should be careful here because there'll be individuals who say, "Well, I have an experience of something that that, that certainly seemed to me like it was spiking by injection." Well, there is data on that, in fact. But but the, when you went through with the police, they said, "Look, we had never found sufficient evidence to." Uh, to proceed to prosecute all the way through, they were always much more concerned about spiking of drinks, just slipping a pill in a yeah. in a drink. That in data terms of- from twenty two twenty three includes nine hundred and fifty seven examples of needle spikes. So the there's four thousand six hundred and forty three in poured into the drink, and almost a thousand with a needle. So and that's reports of reported to the police. And how many of those led to a conviction? Uh, almost none. Not point two five percent. Uh, and that's of the drinks of the needle spiking zero yeah so so how do you take the kind of responsible news reporting approach to this because your saber-toothed tiger point is real here which is it is a genuine risk it is a real risk how do you report it within some context I mean, I'm possibly the worst person to ask around this table because I am genuinely panicking. I mean, when I first read that story on Sunday, it filled me with a with an instant fear. Um, I mean, I think that the the cases needs to be made. So the, the two things that the police need to um, prosecute are they need evidence of the substance. So the tests need to be improved. When women self-report as being spiked and they should be believed and they should be tested instantly, the tests need to be better. The tests for drinks need to be improved. If you test a drink, you have a very slim chance of accurately reporting. And the police also need a suspect. So they need witnesses or CCTV evidence. Now, unless you've got the first stage, unless you've got the substance, it's really hard to start looking for the suspect. So what we really have is a problem that science could step in and take a hand. I mean, we could look at how are we going to rearrange what happens to a woman on an evening where she reports a problem. At the moment, she's usually taken to hospital and hospitals don't test. It's not A&E's job to do that test. Jess? Why isn't it A&E's job to do that test they if say, time is so important? Because they say it's not their job to collect ev- forensic evidence for the police. It's a general policy. By and large, they will treat the, for instance, yeah. in the case of a stabbing, they don't see that it's their job to collect the forensic evidence. It's their job to treat the victim. What if the victim asks for a test? Well, at the moment, that doesn't happen. Although, on a case by some hospitals, case by case, it can happen, but it yeah. doesn't as a rule happen. I'm I mean, just trying to work out how we treat bridge them. this gap. You can't treat them health-wise unless you know what drug is inside. So, I mean, it, the it, assumption it, it, is they're drunk. That's the trouble. It, they they hydrate yeah. them and then they wait for them to sober mm. up. Mm. I, I'm going to 
try and pull this together because it's such a <laughs> entirely varied um, set of stories and ideas. Um, and I can't remember a news meeting where I felt so at sea. So <laughs> I'm going to cheat and ask each of you to suggest which story should lead the news if you weren't choosing your own. Jess, you go first. Uh, I would pick spiking to lead the news. Um, more because actually I, I'm not happy with my idea of how to try and make Chris's story stand out as worthy of being top of the running order at the New York Times or the BBC. So I need to think about it. Stephen? Well, I think that Chris's story is the most interesting in terms of how we understand our world. I think I want to try to find the headline for it. And I know that that's exactly what Chris doesn't want. But I think <laughs> that that is the challenge in a way, is how to say care about this now. And I think finding the right person, finding the right personal narrative, that's the intriguing part. Chris? I'm going to go with uh, with Sudan. It's... Um, just that the, the numbers and the scale of that problem, the, the fact that you've got these lives, they're a long way away. Let's, it, it is incredibly important. Thank you. Chris, Stephen, Jess, thank you all. I, I, I have to confess I end up in a similar place. I think that uh, you lead the news on Sudan for exactly the reason you say. I think that the combination of crises hitting the UN is relevant to everyone, and it fits, as you say, Stephen, you know, the question of the political narrative here in the UK. I do think the Red Sea and a story that spills and puts a whole new set of pressures from, you know, the continent of Africa on the Gulf of the Middle East of his enormous importance. And I also think, as you say, the numbers, not just the numbers of death and these terrible figures around uh, uh, rape and child mortality, but just the displacement. Eight million people is going to visit, you know, mm. countries not just in Africa, but, you know, uh, all around the world in one form or another. So lead with Sudan. I run the second story would be spiking because I think it's one of those stories that the reason they put out the numbers is so people begin to have a debate and get to the what if question. Mm. Funnily enough, the response I've got to the 21,000 is to think that there's a different way of doing the news altogether. So our chair, Matthew Barson, was in the office one day and said, could we do a news matrix? Could we do a grid every day that is from one end to the other, unsurprising, surprising, important, unimportant, classic two by two. And we tried it one day and we've happened to do it every day since just trying to plot how surprising is a piece of information and how important is it. Actually, when I listen to you, I think there's a real chance for us to experiment with something that's also graphic, which is an hour hand and a minute hand. How could we weekly give you a clock face of the news where you're saying, look, in an hour hand terms, this has been a point of you know, progress or frankly, also, you know, neglect or decline. I don't think we should be kind of, as you say, pointed towards good news or bad news, but we should be pointed to developments. And then how would you compare with the minute hand? Um, and this is the perfect way to end this because this is a problem that lands with John Hill and the whole gang on the design desk to try and figure this out. So we'll, we'll bump it to them. Um, but for now, just to say a big thank you, Chris Anson, for coming in and joining us at the news meeting, Stephen Armstrong, Jess Winch, very good to see you again. If you think that we've missed a story, there's a lot of news out there, South Carolina, Gaza, Islamophobia. If we've missed a story, or we've just got our judgment wrong, please do send an email or a voicemail, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And if you want to come and weigh in in person, please do join us at the next Tortoise News Meeting Live, which is here in our newsroom. 
Elizabeth Day is going to be joining us. Um, if you haven't heard her, she's really brilliant and makes you think about not just news, but life differently. Do come and join us. It's on the 27th of March uh, at the end of next month. So please book in now and join us at the news meeting live. And we're going to leave you with the words of Radek Sikorski, the Polish foreign minister, speaking at the UN Security Council. He's responding to comments made by the Russian ambassador about the rationale for Russia's war in Ukraine. And this is what you'd call a takedown. Ambassador Nebendia has called um, Kiev the clients of the West. Actually, Kiev is fighting to be independent of anybody. He calls them a criminal Kiev regime. In fact, uh, Ukraine has a democratically elected uh, government. Um, he calls them Nazis. Well, the president is Jewish, the defense minister is Muslim, and they have no political prisoners. He said that Ukraine was wallowing in corruption. Well, uh, Alexei Navalny dem uh, documented uh, uh, how um, honest and full of probity uh, his own country is. Uh, he blamed the war on U.S. neocolonialism. In fact, it is Russia that tried to exterminate uh, Ukraine in the 19th century, again under the Bolsheviks, and it's the third attempt. He said that we are prisoners of Russophobia. Phobia means irrational fear. Yet, we are being um, threatened uh, almost every day by the former president of Russia and by um, Putin propagandists with nuclear annihilation. I put to you that it's not irrational. When Russia threatens, threatens us, we trust it. Tortoise. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.